You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for another Lozano Smith podcast. I'm your host, Sloan Simmons, partner at a Lozano Smith Sacramento office, one of the co-practice group leaders in litigation, um, and admirer of all other practice groups. But today, the focus is charter schools. And we're going to be talking about the impacts of COVID-19 on charter school reform efforts. I am very pleased to be joined today uh, by two of our outstanding charter school experts and attorneys. I'll start first with the office managing partner of the Walnut Creek office of Lozano Smith, Ed Sklar, and an attorney with Lozano Smith of of 20 years or 20 years plus. Um, I've seen many hairstyles from Ed over the years. Now we're going to a real sleek look at this point in time. Um, This may make Ed blush, but I, in, in my view, and I think most would agree both internally and out and externally um, out of our firm. Ed Sklar is the California charter school guru, um, the, the preeminent expert in, in charter school law in California and has been for quite some time. I'm also very lucky to be joined by Aaron Haymore out of our Sacramento office, one of our newly minted partners, um, co-practice group leader of the charter school practice group, uh, deeply involved in many of the, the significant efforts we have made over the years in understanding uh, charter school legislation and reforms involved in several litigation matters on this front. So, Aaron, Ed, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Sloan. Happy to be here. Oh, don't don't be too excited, Ed. Um, as we uh, as we start this off, um, and we're looking at COVID nineteen charter school reform litigation. Ed, can you kind of give us some groundwork of how we got here? You know, where we are, where we've been when it comes to this subject. Sure. Um, and, and, and talking about charter reform legislation, probably about two years ago with uh, a new governor and and other political winds changing to, for higher regulation of charter schools, uh, legislat- legislation was passed. Um, that you, we heard about AB 1505, but there was other legislation as well that basically wanted to increase uh, accountability for charter schools. And that included, you know, a focus on looking at how the charter renewal process worked, making sure that it was uh, fair for charter schools as well as for authorizers. But it really laid sort of some, some it made renewals very highly regulated through the legislation, much more so than was going on in the prior 27 years that the Charter Schools Act had been in California. So renewals, you know, the legislature with renewals clarified um, uh, what was meant by having a sound educational program and gave further sort of clarification to what it means for a charter school, that a charter school is going to likely successfully implement its program. And most of this was tied to the state dashboard when we're talking about renewals. We'll put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that later and the, the, the issues of renewals being tied so closely to the dashboard in these COVID times. Um, The charter reform legislation not only impacted renewals, but it also tried to, um, it recognized basically there was a concern in the operation of charter schools in their recruitment or lack of recruitment and enrollment of students with disabilities and students who were English learners. 
Um, there was also concerns uh, that were addressed through the charter reform legislation about the geographic location regulation, where the state was basically reining in charters being authorized by one school district and then setting up facilities in another school district. Um, and then finally, one of the other big pieces of the charter reform legislation we saw that was passed in the past several couple of years, couple of years, was an increased accountability for non-classroom-based charter schools, virtual charter schools, um, where there was a two-year moratorium put on those, the, the creation of any new non-classroom-based charter schools. And, and so- and With that, is it safe to say that that 2019 legislation was a huge deal and the biggest change in charter school law since the Charter School Act's enactment? It was. It was seen as, it was widely regarded as just the widest uh, legislative reform of charter schools in the, since 1992 when the Charter Schools Act originally went into place. Got it. Got it. And so the, all of these legislative reforms, or most of these legislative reforms, um, AB 1505, which was a big deal at the time, and folks heard, have probably heard a lot of discussion about AB 1505 when it was passed, was all set to be implemented or become in effect on July 1, 2020. So where were we then? On July 1, 2020, we were home, right? And our kids were home from school for the most part and standardized testing wasn't happening. So there was big disruption to education and big disruption to charter school educational reform. And one of the things I you know, mentioned before, a lot of things in regard to renewal were tied to the dashboard the dashboard went by the wayside and the and everybody shifted into distance learning mode. Um, so there was a big impact on all of this reform that was supposed to go that was supposed to take place. You know, AB 1505, other charter legislation, which was probably what you could call myopic in hindsight or really just a really a perfect storm of bad luck uh, that all of the, the statutes and particularly the renewals that were tied to the dashboard had not imagined a world without our, you know, the state boards, the, the dashboard for, to, to measure accountability for school districts and charter schools. Um, and so what we're seeing is where the goal was the account of more accountability for charter schools, we're now shifting to a place of during the pandemic, post-pandemic, probably less accountability um, or arguably, yeah, Less, much less accountability for charter schools. And this lack of accountability will be much more pronounced if what we're seeing right now in the governor's trailer bill um, actually passes. And I know that Aaron has some thoughts on that. Aaron, so Ed's laid that, that table of this history that's led us to where we are now, kind of the present context where districts and charter schools in the state legislatures juggling accountability versus less accountability. Where are we in terms of, I think it's AB 1316, trailer bills that are now working their way through? Where are we right now? Right. So there's a few things on the table right now, and I'll just back up very briefly and say what's running in the background of some of these accountability measures like AB 1316. Um, is this very high-profile charter school indictment that was down in San Diego. It was called the People versus McManus A3 Charter School. Some people may have read about it in the news. Um, and really what was going on down there was a large-scale indictment where 11 different defendants, 19 charter schools, 
In the criminal court. In the criminal court and defendants making millions and millions of dollars off of charter schools through a scheme that really, in short, um, was kind of like a shell game where they were moving around students to try to get more uh, charter school dollars. So in light of all of that, there was a lot of concern. Uh, and pa Patrick O'Donnell in Sacramento proposed AB 1316 that really was kind of this wholesale reform on a lot of areas of charter school. We're talking about pupil data tracking and auditing and finances. Driven by that, the criminal indictment. Driven by the criminal indictment, driven by concerns and uh, the loopholes that were really discovered as a result of that indictment and, and wanting to tighten things up. The problem a lot of people said is that AB 1316 went way too far, right? The whole purpose of charter schools is to provide some independence to these schools. And uh, the charter school community really felt that it reined it in too much. So a lot of pushback and what ultimately happened just a month or so ago, maybe less, is that that got shelved through a deal with the governor. And where we are now is that there has been a deal, essentially, that through a trailer bill that'll come up, um, two things are going to happen. So one, there's going to be an extension on the current non-classroom-based moratoriums so that's going to be extended three more years. Uh, authorizers won't be allowed to authorize new non-classroom-based or someone, sometimes people think of them as virtual or online schools through 2025. Um, and, and then second, and this is really big, is that charter school renewals will be on hiatus for the next two years. Um, charter petitions that were authorized during a certain time frame will get an automatic extension on their charter petitions. So this this is interesting because on the one hand, it's part of part of a backroom deal. Um, it at the same time raises some concerns regarding accountability measures you know, over the next two and three years. So it definitely is triggering this chain reaction on charter schools and authorizers. Now, you two each may hit this. I'm just going to ask my kind of layman, non-charter school expert question. So let's say, recognizing that our measures for accountability were basically taken away during COVID-19, let's, let's say as we roll into 21-22 school year and assuming, knocking on wood, et cetera, that we're back full everywhere, and it's discovered that a given charter school basically had dropped the ball during this time period on providing education to their kids. Is there any recourse for a district apart from waiting for that two-year renewal date to come up to address a problem like that? Yeah. I, I, the, the, the resolution or the, the remedy for the, the authorizer, the school district, is what the remedy has always been, which is revocation. And, and I say it's always been non-renewal, not renewing a charter was a big deal and an arrow in the quiver for, for charter authorizers. And now it's if over the next two years, if the legislation that basically extends, as Aaron said, the, the charter term for everybody, then the only arrow in the quiver will be revocation, which is a long and expensive process for charter authorizers. Got it. Got it. As opposed to the alternative of you have not succeeded in what the petition envisioned for our kids, we're not renewing you a much more simple process to end that relationship. Correct. Charter schools always have the right to appeal non-renewals uh, to to the county board and to the and to the state. But yeah, as as an authorizer, it was a it is as you said a much more simple process than revocation. 
so Ed, what uh, what is there on this front in terms of non-classroom based charter schools and accountability vis-a-vis the pandemic? So for a long time, it was known in California um, and throughout the country that there were concerns about non-classroom based charter schools, vir- you know, virtual learning for students. A lot of charter schools enrolled a lot of kids in California um, in these virtual charter schools, non-classroom-based charter schools. And and the concerns were so much that, that as part of AB 1505, part of the charter reform leg- legislation, the legislature said, for the next two years, we are going to study non-classroom-based charters, specifically virtual, ca- virtual charters and virtual learning. And we are in that two-year study study period, we are not going to allow any more vir- any new virtual academies to come online. And, uh, and virtual learning, there will be no vir- new virtual learning charter petitions coming online. And they, the legislature was proceeding with its study. Um, and then what happened? Everybody went virtual and went online, right? So, uh, you know, not only charter schools, but districts alike, um, they were basically forced to operate non-classroom-based programs. And what you saw nationally and in California was that parents were turning to those that they believed had the most expertise in conducting those programs, which were the virtual charter schools that already existed. And so... During the pandemic, you did see a growth in virtual charter schools on a national level. In California, there was some, what I'll call legislative maneuvering through SB 98 that basically kept the charters, the virtual charter schools, the non-classroom-based charter schools uh, funded at their 2019, 2020 levels. And so it basically precluded charter schools from being able to take advantage of this surge but the, the, the already existing charter schools from taking advantage of this surge in interest. But the bottom line is that while it prevented actual enrollment growth, their wait lists for these charter schools have grown and there's higher than ever interest in enrollment in virtual charter schools. And Ed, yeah, there may not be an answer to this, but when we're talking classic or what has historically been virtual charter schools, these non-classroom-based charter schools, where they have a model where you are basically jumping online and and learning through modules without an actual you know direct face there running it as as was the case for the vast majority of the ultimately well-run distance learning models by school districts around the state where you had direct engagement with the teacher on a regular basis or, or is that the type of model that these non-classroom based charter schools run or are they more of okay you're in lesson one of math, you know, you're going through modules online without a live person, or is it a mixed bag? It's a mixed bag, but you would see a lot of charter schools that were operating without live interaction with the instructor. So, yeah, and there was a lot of reliance on, say, folks in the uh, parents and or guardians or folks in the home to be conducting the, the, the education. So it was not exactly what districts and other classroom-based charter schools were providing during the pandemic. Um, There were a lot of, not all, but there were a lot of virtual academies that were basically, you know, the the almost equivalent of of homeschooling. Did did the state, was the state able to complete its review of the success 
of NCBs during the pandemic? They were. I think Erin has some, some thoughts on that study. They were able to complete the report, and the bottom line, um, in a lot of details, the bottom line is that non-classroom-based charter schools did not get high marks, and they did not get glowing reviews. Uh, Student academics suffered, generally achievement marks were lower, and the overall consensus is that a student probably does not get the same education at a non-classroom-based or virtual school that they would in a seat-based setting. Understanding, of course, that there are different reasons why people choose that model of mm-hmm. instruction. And for some people, um, and a lot of students, that makes sense. But when you compare the raw data, the education is not necessarily the same as a seat-based program. Is the idea, in terms of the recognizing that no matter if you were a virtual academy before or after the pandemic, if you were a long-running virtual academy, there still is going to be impact stressors, variables during COVID-19 that necessarily would have made the school year unique for any educational setting. But it seems to me also that there would be an expectation that an NCB would be the best situated to continue its normal MO and successfully continue to educate at, at whatever levels that they are aiming for, even with COVID. So is that why those results still have some significant merit in the overall review of their success? I think so. I think it's it's very important. And, and there's some irony, right, to where we right. find ourselves um, in light of the pandemic. What we did hear anecdotally is that a lot of schools, school districts who had relationships with these non-classroom-based charters were reaching out behind the scenes to get tips and information on how these programs should run because it's a model, as you said, that... Um, is up and running for a right. lot of a lot of schools and in, in, in place. All right. So, Aaron, re- recognizing that report came out, we kind of see what those results are. But now we're juggling the trailer bill and what's going to be the answer. Where does the trailer bill land when it comes to to NCBs? So, if the trailer bill passes and we expect it will at this point, then non classroom based programs will be. Um, on hiatus, essentially the moratorium will be extended through 2025, meaning no new non-classroom-based charter petitions can be approved through that time. I, I'm assuming you guys are going to address this, but I'm I'm starting to I'm starting to see the ingredients in the sausage. So is the idea that okay, if you're in existence, we're going to extend. You don't have to come back or renew. So that's a that's a that's a you know a coin for the charter school side of the equation, and then for the NCBs, we're still going to halt any new ones, and so that's the coin for those who are on the other side of the ledger that want to restrict the activity. Is that is that our our compromise? Well, yeah. right, and we're going to get rid of the regulations that Aaron was talking about under thirteen sixteen, which we're going to kill non classroom based. Program. So it was, yes, there was a, a coin for everybody, but it was really two coins for the charter schools. Got it. Got it. And um, why don't we talk about the, the if the trailer bill passes and this uh, hiatus from the renewal process? Oh, how, how, talk about that and the accountability uh, components that overlay with it. Sure. So as I mentioned before the the you know one of the ways that a charter authorizer holds a charter school accountable is every five years the charter school has to come back and ask the charter authorizer the school district board 
to re-up their charter and basically renew them. And if they have not been performing well, then AB 1505, uh, the Charter Schools Act, basically laid out what the process would be for renewing a charter renewal. And um, a lot of that was focused on the academic improvement or academic performance of the charter school over its five-year term uh, as measured on the dashboard. And so what we've had over the last couple of years since, or, uh, you know, yeah, basically impacting at least the last two academic years due to the pandemic has been the absence of real standardized testing, the absence of a dashboard and dashboard colors. And so that basically prevents the measure of, of, of whether there should be renewal um, under AB 1505. And so what has been proposed under the current trailer bill language is we are simply going to basically extend every charter school's term in California for two years. Um, and so any of the charter schools that would have been coming up for renewal in the next, I think it's like three years or so, that they, would, they wouldn't have to come up for renewal, bottom line. And so there would be no renewal process for the next two years. That lays a real concern about accountability when that process of coming back to your authorizer, if you have not been performing well, to ask them to re-up your charter if that process is not there, if it's absent. I will say, since the pandemic began, charter authorizers overall have been very reluctant to not renew charter petitions when they're coming up in front of their, their boards because the rationale being kids' lives have already been disrupted. We don't want to disrupt it further right. by, by closing a kid's charter school. So that was there, but now this would just completely wipe out the process. You know what, Ed, um, you know what this is reminding me of, and it's interesting, or maybe it's not, it's interesting for me. You're just making me think of it as we're talking about it. There was a case uh, several years ago that we prepared an amicus brief for, a charter litigation matter that related to, if you recall, the, the process for the parents to petition and turn a school into a charter school. Um, and it was based upon a measure under adequate yearly progress by way of the old school NCLB federal measure. And we argued in that brief that it didn't make sense to even utilize it anymore because the AYP had been wiped off the board as a measurement years before that. And this to me mirrors that in some ways. And I, I, I think you're gonna talk about, you know, in terms of the legislation 1505 and 1507, was it too specific and that it did not account for being able to maneuver through a scenario like this. But looking back to that old measure, it's kind of the same thing happening all over again, just really unique circumstances in terms of COVID-19. Right, exactly. Academic metrics get revised and then the charter school law seems to try and catch up with it of, oh my goodness, what we had in place five years ago is no longer in place. This charter's up for renewal and now we have no way to measure whether they've been academically successful or not. You're, you're right. It is a analogous situation. If I'm thinking about that prior case, I think the position taken and ultimately maybe validated was based upon the state's position that they were going to continue to look at the measurement from prior years, even though they had ceased taking it for a couple of years, which to me just seems at that point, 
what's the point of even having a measurement if we're if we're going to look you know several years ago and say well just use that as your measure yeah that, that, not that that's, that's what's happening here but that, that's correct so I and I think that this language what so where we are right now as we are recording this podcast is that I think this language was about the two-year basically a two-year moratorium or two-year extension for all charters basically leading to a two-year moratorium for the renewal process. This was all new as of a couple of weeks ago, and it really caught some author most authorizers by surprise. And so that language sort of came out of nowhere. And districts are figuring out, how do we feel about this? What do we want to do to respond? So as we record this, it, it seems likely that it's going to stay, but we will see if there will be pushback from um, districts, district authorizers, authorized support groups to um, push back on this two-year hiatus because it really does two-year hiatus on renewals because it really basically leaves it to the district now not to have renewal, as I had mentioned before, as a quiver in its, as an arrow in its quiver, it now has to rely on revocation. So, Ed, is there, in the trailer bill, are there some specific timelines that really kind of, at least at this point in the bill, clearly delineate kind of how this renewal moratorium is going to work chronologically? Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity for, for me to specify. So, it would be charter schools with charter terms beginning on or before July 1, 2020, and ending between June 30, 2022 and June 30, 2025, which is the significant number of charter schools operating in the state right now, will have their charter term automatically extended for two years. So that, that timeline, I mean, I'm, I'm, here's, here's my math weaknesses, or maybe it's numbers in general, but I mean, that seems to ultimately capture almost all of them, no? I mean, a, I mean... A significant portion of anything that's in existence is going to get the benefit of this move. That, that's correct, because you basically have um, it's running from really what existed before July 1, 2020 and goes all the way through June of 2025. That's a five year term. That's the term of the charters that are out there. And uh, so, yes, it is going to cover the significant majority of charter schools in the state. I will also say that there are not like since the pandemic. So for charter schools starting after July 1, 2020, post pandemic charters, I'll say they there aren't many like there, you do not. You did not see a lot of charter schools trying to start up and begin their charter uh, uh, and, and initiate like commence operations of a new charter school since the pandemic began. There was a dearth of that around the state. And, and I so think we're talking about a lot of the charters, most of the charters. I think the other interesting thing to think about here mathematically is we're talking about a two-year extension, so to speak, okay. right, on, on renewals. But when you do the math it, and, and when we start applying these two-year extensions, it really pushes it out quite a bit further. Is, it, is a renewal the automatic full five years or can you restrain the number of years in the renewal? One of the things that AB 1505 did was it used to be a five-year automatic renewal like that, no more, no less. And now under AB 1505, 
if you are, they have three tiers of charter schools that come up for renewal. If you're low performing, you're either not renewed or renewed for no more than two years. Or if you are medium performing, which is the vast majority of charter schools in the state, then it is, again, an automatic five years. If you fit the if you fit into the tier of a high performing charter school, then it is you can be renewed for up to seven years. Um, so somewhere between five and seven years. And under the trailer bill, anyone who gets this auto extension, there it's a little bit outside those rules, so they would get an auto extension for two years, for essentially, two. Okay. on their term. Okay, their so term. it's not as if you're going to – it's not as if you're potentially baked in for, in essence, 10, depending on when you were there. Okay. that's. I mean, there's some bumpers there. That's right. Right. So, Aaron, let's talk about location accountability. So this is one of the other unintended impacts potentially of the trailer bill under AB 1507. Another accountability reform aspect is that it was supposed to rein in those charter schools that were improperly locating around the state, either locating outside the boundaries of their authorizing district or outside the county of their authorizing district. What happened with AB 1505 and 1507 is that a number of those charter schools that were already improperly located became subject to what we are calling a grandfathering clause. Essentially, they get to stay at their current location for the life of their charter petition, wherever that location may be. And so if you start connecting the dots on this, you can see that not only do we have these auto renewals for some of these charter schools, um, but, but that will mean for a lot of them that they also get to stay for an additional two years at whatever their current, um, you know, supposedly improper location is. So that's something that authorizers and specifically school districts who have charter schools improperly located in their district will have to grapple with over the next few years. Is that something that we might see some noodling with as the trailer bill heads toward? That to me seems like one where so, you, so the benefit of the renewal, okay, but the location piece is in some ways independent from that in a way that you, you, you think maybe the legislature would modify the trailer bill to address this scenario. It would be nice if they did. We haven't seen that yet. In the language of AB 1505, I think at this point, the way it's worded seems like it would it would allow these charter schools to stay around for two more years because it's worded in such a way that it's tied to the end of the charter school's term, um, you know, whatever that may be. In addition, we find ourselves in this new kind of awkward scenario where under AB 1505, charter schools improperly located actually have the option to go to a district that never authorized them, never oversaw them, and request a renewal of their current charter petition from the district in which they're improperly located. And so just from an accountability standpoint, we, over the next few years, will be seeing charter schools potentially uh, go to brand new districts to be quote unquote renewed, um, where that district really doesn't have a strong basis or metrics to make that decision to renew them. So that's, that's kind of a consequence of you know, multiple pieces of legislation at this point. How does that interact with the the moratorium on having to seek a renewal? 
Well, I guess it pushes that decision. It kicks the can down the road, so to speak, for some of these charter schools. Um, I guess the silver lining to that could be for the districts in which these schools are located. Maybe they have more of an opportunity to, you know, become aware of these schools, renew their performance, that sort of thing. Got it. But but the bottom line was that the while the schools are not going to have to come back at this point to justify their facility because they are not going to be up for renewal for two more years, when they actually when this renewal moratorium, for lack of a better word, ends, then they get to go to the brand new district that everyone was talking about and basically seek a renewal, which is a much higher standard to deny than just an initial petition. And so, so that has been problematic. We've seen that as problematic with AB 1505, AB 1507, pandemic or no pandemic. It just puts a hardship on the district, the new authorizer or the new district asked to be authorizer, asked to be the authorizer, because it makes them have to deny a renewal of this new school and not a, not an initial, not it's not denial of an initial petition. And so chronologically, based on when 1505 and 1507 was enacted, we were absent the trailer bill. That's what was on the horizon was that scenario was going to start popping up. That's right. right. And, and it's always been problematic. Got it. So uh, I am not surprised that I'm really enjoying this conversation. You two are incredibly bright and articulate, and I'm learning stuff as we sit here, as I'm sure our listeners are as well. Are there other big picture things on this subject um, that you'd like our listeners to know about uh, before we wrap up today's discussion? I have two very quick thoughts. And and one is uh, that what we were anticipating to receive is um, some state regulations to help implement the changes under AB 1505, AB 1507. And that simply has not happened. I don't even think that we can chalk that up to the pandemic. The state board has not adopted AB regulations for AB 1505 and AB 1507. I think that that's more political. I think they just can't reach what are going to, what would be seen as feasible and acceptable regulations to the charter community and the uh, traditional uh, uh, educational community. And so those lie without, like when we're talking about the concern about a lack of accountability, we have what I think are some pretty vaguely written statutes under AB 1505 and 1507. We were looking forward to figuring out like, how do we properly interpret these statutes with some state regulations? And those just haven't come down the pike. And I don't know when they're going to come down the pike. The other thing is, uh, we were saying that when charters come up for renewal, one of the legislative changes that were made was they were the charter schools would always have to discuss in their charter petitions how they were going to recruit and enroll to look like the district uh, on and have a racial and ethnic balance that looks like the community served by the district. The new charter legislation basically recognized that there was a concern about a lack of enrollment of students with disabilities and English learners in in charter schools. And so when charters were going to be up for renewal, they were going to have to basically discuss their recruitment program and how they were going to make sure that there was a balance of students with disabilities and English learners at their charter school that looked like the district's obligations for students with disabilities and English learners. Now, if they don't have to come up for renewal over the next two years, um, or longer, then 
those plans to re- for for those to recruit those students and enroll those students are basically gone by the wayside. Like I'm not seeing the charter community initiating that directive to make sure that they are recruiting adequate numbers of students with disabilities and English learners. And so that just pushes, kicks that that issue down the road even further if there is a renewal moratorium. Ed, if you're a charter school and you're not making those efforts, it seems to me as you look ahead toward when you're actually going to have to get a renewal at some point, that best practices would be to aiming to hit that bullseye. Uh, is there an argument that if you fully ignore that obligation, and not only for the time period since 1505 and 1507 was passed, but all the way up until this next renewal opportunity comes, that in some ways it may come back and, and, and bite you if you're a charter school. At, at what point? When you're up for renewal and you haven't done that? When, after this new extended date and time when renewals will actually come back into play, it seems to me a, a dereliction of their obligation if you don't, if, if we're not only talking about a failure on that recruitment measure over these two years, but if you ignore it all the way up until when you're going for renewal, I don't know, maybe I'm, 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 I'm putting more on it or not. It would seem to me it wouldn't feel like good faith actions if you sought a renewal five years from now when the moratorium's gone and you have not attempted to recruit and, and reflect your, your community uh, up until, you know, right before your renewal petition submitted. I, you raise a really good point. I am seeing charter boards of charter authorizers that are concerned about the lack of diverse recruitment and enrollment by charter schools. And I'm seeing that as sort of a separate issue. It's like, what are you doing in practice? When it comes to, though, what AB 1505 required, where they have to actually put what that recruitment is going to look like and what that enrollment is going to look like in their charter petition, then that forces the, the charter school to put its money where its mouth is with, you know, basically like now you have it in your petition. Have you actually been complying with your petition to put these enrollment or these recruitment and enrollment programs in place to look to balance, to look like the district, make sure you have enough or make sure that you are actually educating students with disabilities and English learners. So I agree with you. If they sit on their, if charters sit on their hands and don't do this, districts are going to be or, or yeah, charter authorizers are not going to be happy about that. But the fact that they actually have the law requires them by the time they're up for renewal to actually have put it in their petition, that really gives the muscle to the authorizers to enforce that this stuff needed to be done or needs to be Understood. done. Understood. I would also say to your point, Sloan, I think it's interesting because there are a few new bases for denial that were within AB 1505, notwithstanding all of the different tiers. And one of those bases is whether a charter school was serving all of the students they should be serving, the, the SPED students and so forth. So in theory, that's still out there Got as it. a stick, so to speak. Yeah. Anything else yeah. from you two? Uh, let's see what happens after the pandemic is done. <laughs> and we're back. And, and uh, you know, I'm, 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 I think over time, the concerns about AB 1505 and then charter reform legislation will work itself out. It's just taking some time to get there. Gosh, I, I feel like we're leaving on a very solemn note. But um, this whole conversation, as I said earlier, very interesting. Um, I suppose our listeners should all just pay close attention to that trailer bill, see what the end product is. But it sounds like both of you are fairly certain that it looks to be moving in the direction to stay intact as is without any significant revisions. So thank you both. This has been awesome. Uh, Thank you to our listeners. 
uh, for tuning in to a Lozano Smith podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we talked about today. Also, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, guys. Thanks, love. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.